Coming up on today's show, you'll be hearing my conversation with writer, director, and producer Ben Recchi. We talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected his career, what may happen with the movie theater business model, and what the new normal could possibly be for the entertainment industry. We also talk about the wealth of knowledge that he learned working on the set of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and the powerful message that his film Watchlist conveys and how it relates to events happening in the world today. But first, I wanted to give a shout out to the patrons over at my new Patreon over at patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. I want to give a shout out to Steve Wise, Tim Spivey, and Josh Shinnewark. Thank you guys so much for your contributions to the podcast. Blown away by the quick response that I got uh, when I launched the Patreon last week. And if you want to be a part of that, you can get early access to new episodes you can ask the guests that I have on this show every week a question. You can vote on upcoming show topics and more. Just head on over to patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. And now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Ben Recchi. Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, where every week I take a look inside the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and joining me on today's show is writer, director, and producer, Mr. Ben Recchi. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Derek. Absolutely. No, you know, we were just talking about... Um, you know, you're you're living out in, in Los Angeles, and I feel like this has kind of become the tradition of what I've been asking all my guests since March is how has the COVID-19 pandemic uh, been affecting you as far as your career goes? Well, it's, you know, it's affected everyone in different ways in every industry in catastrophic ways. It's uh, disrupted our way of life. I mean, you know, personally, I actually had COVID back in January. Um, there was a, a first wave that came to this country. It came through uh, Los Angeles in November, December, and January. And um, they estimated that about a half a million Angelinos had it at that time. And so I thought it was a pretty bad flu um, and didn't, you know, I went to the doctor and, and was pretty knocked flat for a while, but recovered. And when the antibody tests came out in March, I went and took one and, and they were like, yeah, you, you have the antibodies. So you, were you sick recently? And, and so, um, you know, I, in some ways I feel like glad that I've had it and maybe have like a certain amount of immunity to it for a certain amount of time. Um, but as far as how it's affected work, uh, you know, fortunately I was in post-production on my next film on a, on a documentary. And so um, we were, had the opportunity to continue editing and, and doing like sound work and just finished that film um, recently. And so I think people that, you know, were in post-production or are in development are able to continue work, but, you know, obviously production is, is still shut down for the most part. And so we'll see a lull in, in new releases and new TV shows. Um, and it's been tough. I mean, I think documentaries will pick back up sooner than fictional films just because of, you know, you can do a smaller crew and it's non-union a lot of the time. Um, but, you know, how and what this like landscape will look like moving forward, we're all still trying to figure out. It's interesting, and that's been a recurring thing as well, is what is the new norm going to be as far as the film industry? Because you think of these huge sets that you hear about, like with the, the Marvel movies, with the latest Star Wars movies, all your big budget films. I think there's a very good chance that we're going to see the return of smaller independent film as far as like they're still around but I think they'll become more prevalent because you don't know what the restrictions are going to be as far as how many people you can have on a set and various things like that and people just wanting to be more careful I, I do think the big blockbusters will still be around but I could see them only being like you know maybe two or three maybe four a year as opposed to the amount that we have now it's interesting. I mean, that, you know, there's going to be an added cost to production to keep people safe and, you know, have like departments that are there for uh, like, what are they calling it? Um, sanitation, sanitizing. And, and, and so, th and 
the restrictions that, you know, the unions have on terms of like how long you can shoot after being tested and stuff will add like a cost of production of maybe 20% to a budget. So actually the bigger films might be the ones that can bear that and the smaller ones might have trouble. But I do think you're right. People are going to have to get creative and shooting in one location or shooting, you know, a lot of people talking about this Unreal Engine that they're using on the Mandalorian show and a bunch of other places as a way to like fake these exteriors. And so we'll see. I mean, you know, there people are going to want content still. I mean, obviously, streaming platforms are going gangbusters right now uh, with the amount of content that people are consuming. So where there's a will, there's a way. It's nuts because even before COVID, it seemed like every other week or sometimes every week, Netflix was coming out with a new original series or an original movie. Now it's yeah. between Netflix, Hulu, even throw in Disney Plus in there. Now you have HBO Max. NBC is going to have their own. We're not going to be short on content. It's just how it's going to be done it is interesting. You yeah. mentioned the technology used in The Mandalorian. I think we're going to see that a lot more. I know they're talking about using it for the Obi-Wan Kenobi series that's going to be filmed, I believe, next year. So that that could be the like the next big revolutionary step in technology as far as how films are made. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've seen some demos that are pretty impressive. Uh, I spoke to the Unreal guys recently and, you know, there's a big concern, obviously, with like labor. Will that, you know, dis displace a lot of people in the film industry, um, you know, which there always is with some technological leap. But there's a lot of front end programming that goes in that employs a lot of people. I mean, the big question about all this is the theatrical experience. You know, theaters were already on the decline and you know, even if they were to reopen, which a lot of them might not, uh, will people feel safe going to them? And so it's it's kind of scary. You know, I think that they will find, there will be a time where they come back and now that you have drive-in theaters and there's really interesting stuff with like pop-up theaters that are happening. Um, but that theatrical experience, uh, you know, was was on its, on its sort of like last breaths already and this might have been the nail in a coffin for big theater chains uh some of them so we'll see i mean as as you and i are kind of cinephiles and i'm sure a lot of your listeners are too like we'll we'll continue to support if there's a movie playing i'll find a way to go you know feel safe about doing it but i, I can't wait to get back in the theater and, and see a movie uh in the dark room I actually found out today, as we're recording this, that AMC is going to reopen next week on August oh, wow. 20th, or at least the one, you know, we have one, I actually have two here in town, one's like a couple of blocks from my house, but they're doing, on opening day, they're doing 15 cent movies. 15 what movies? 15 cents per, for a ticket. Oh, wow. Okay. Are they, are they doing distancing in the seats where like mm -hmm. some of them are closed, like every fourth seat or something like that? And it's only up to 30% capacity, I think, for, okay. the, for per, per room. And you have well, to wear I mean, a mask at all times, except for if you're like eating or, you know, having a drink or whatever, you can take yeah. your mask off, but otherwise you have to wear it at all times. I mean, that's great. I, I, I can't wait to go see Tenet. So if there's a way to do it, I, I'm there. Yeah, it's funny because I was against it for the most part in the beginning. I said, there's one situation that will get me in a theater. Christopher I, Nolan? I look at the, well, Christopher Nolan too, but they're, they're showing older movies leading up to the release of Tenet. Right. And I noticed on the schedule was The Empire Strikes Back, which is my all-time favorite movie. And I'm like, oh, you guys are going to pull me back in. <laughs> I'm more of a Return of the Jedi guy, but I, I understand that, that passion. Uh no, it's been cool. You know, I, going back and seeing these old movies, like, you know, we went to go see, was it The Princess Bride was playing at a pop-up here. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Jurassic Park is is playing at the drive-in. So it's kind of fun to see these movies that we haven't seen since kids or honestly like an entire generation of people might not have seen on the big screen. So it's the power of movies. I mean, you know, Walmart is turning 40% of its locations into pop-up uh pop-up movie theaters uh over the over the coming months and so we're seeing a lot of innovation too and and that's exciting absolutely you no know, and we had a, a pop-up movie tour come through here that was essentially like a drive-in and they played a new hope actually on may 4th so oh, i got wow. to see that on star wars day so that was that was pretty <laughs> incredible yeah that's awesome nothing so, like sharing the experience on the big screen with people absolutely so you, obviously you're a huge fan of movies. What was it that originally 
made you decide to pursue filmmaking as a career? Was it a certain movie? Was it just something that you knew from an early age that you wanted to do? What What was it? Uh, I guess, yeah, it was. It was probably, I mean, geek out a little bit here. It was probably Indiana Jones trilogy. I, I had a fedora and a leather jacket. And so we had a backyard, you know, uh, movie making crew where there was like three or four of us that would get together after school and, and just shoot these adventure scenes. And, you know, it's kind of dangerous. We did our own stunts and got injured and stuff, but, you know, through each of these little like short videos, we'd pick up one little trick of the cinematic language and, and started to put them together into, into longer, more sophisticated pieces. Um, so it was really actually, you know, they say that like when you're learning the ski, you should, you should kind of follow the tracks of the instructor. And then once you have that, you can kind of venture off into the woods. Uh, and so it was really that, like, you know, kind of emulating it, our, our favorite movies. And, you know, I grew up in Northern California and my buddy, uh, his dad worked for, or his uncle worked for Apple. And so early on, we got access to some of these uh, QuickTime and digital editing um, softwares. And so I guess uh, this was the early 90s. We were doing like lightsaber battles and stuff. So I guess, you know, now people, kids are doing really sophisticated things online. But at the time, um, you know, it helped us to understand, you know, post and, you know, where you put the camera to get the best shot. And yeah, really just to have fun with your friends, I guess. Well, you bring up a good point is that the best way to really learn film and to me, the best way to learn anything, but I use film specifically as the example is to learn by doing. You, know, you yeah. can you can go to a class and that's a great foundation for you to learn the basics, but where you're really going to learn film is by doing it, whether it's watching other people do it, physically doing it yourself, and, and in your case, you're doing it with friends is a is, is the best way to learn, in my opinion. Totally, yeah, and and all the different aspects to it, like where you put the camera affects what you have in the edit room, and you know where you're cheating on something or doing an action scene, and how to make it look like you know, some guy got punched without actually doing it, like you start to really pay attention to those tricks. And there's a there's a language to cinema. And it's like learning a new language, you kind of you can only only learn by doing or speaking in that case. But yeah, definitely it, just get, pick up the camera and do it like film school is great. And I went to film school, but it's not going to teach you much more than if you just went out there and did it yourself, it might accelerate that process or have the equipment or build relationships and all that. But whether you do it on your own or through a, through a course, like it's, it's really just about repetition and doing. Well, I don't want to discount film school because I, I do think it's important, like I said, to build a foundation, but especially filmmaking now because you have so many other avenues to make it. You can make a film with your phone these days. Yeah. You know, as long yeah. as you have a decent way to get audio, you can make an entire film with an iPhone totally. or, with, like, or, with, or with an Android. Android. Yeah, it's really exciting to see a GoPro, you know, like uh, it's really just comes down to storytelling. And that's so the, and that's the difference is like there's the the craft of, of making the film, but then the story itself. And, and that's often what takes the longest time is to cultivate like a strong sense of story and character and especially dialogue. And it's those things are, you know, like timeless. And, and, and those crafts to me, I found to be the hardest to acquire um, because there's a lot of people who are great at production. They can make a shot and light it and have a great dolly move. But then you see the performance and what the character's saying, what the story is about, and you just cringe. And, and it, and for me, it took me a long time to, you know, understand like the nuance and realism or, or not realism, but just, yeah, that side of it, the storytelling side, I think is the one that's harder to acquire um, and, and takes takes even more like dedicated like time and diligence. Well, and that's where networking comes in. And that's where it's really important because you can be, you might have a great visual eye, but you're not good at directing performance. But you could know someone who's great at directing performance, but may not know the first thing about a camera or how to compose a shot. That's where networking comes in. And that's, I, I say it almost ad nauseum on the show, but that to me is easily the best thing about filmmaking is the collaborative effort between everyone who has different skill sets and different talents all coming together for one common goal. Totally. And, and hopefully it's one common goal as anyone who's probably worked on films knows there's a lot of 
conflict that arises and sometimes people are playing different tunes and, and not all in harmony but but I agree like uh, it's a collaborative process I think that's what separates it a lot from say being a writer or you know being a photographer uh, or even being an actor it, I mean it's it's you need you know 20 people or 100 people to make a film and maybe not maybe you can do it with five people but it's, you can't do it with one person and so that in itself like managing people and I mean I heard this Danny Boyle say this once that filmmaking is really just getting people to show up at the same place at the same time and do the same thing and and when you think about it it's like it's just people in a location whether they're in front of the camera or behind the camera and so do we have the people that we need behind and front and do we have the place and then you know everything else is is kind of just uh going through the motions but uh not to oversimplify it but but I agree with you it's it's a team effort and sometimes getting people to show up is half the battle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. But when they're there, it's usually great. You know, luckily, yeah. I, I haven't worked on too many sets, but the ones that I have, I haven't had to really deal with or see anyone deal with any type of ego or anything like that. Like, it's been everyone's there to do their job and make the project the best they can. And oh, that, that's, when, that's when you know it's, it, it's going to be a good time. It's, oh man, I, I guess I've just, you know, <laughs> I've had so many bad experiences now. Like I've lost so many friends through this business and I've definitely had huge battles with, uh, with, with, with collaborators that, you know, some of them extremely toxic. And so I'm a little bit more, not cynical, but, uh, but definitely, um, you know, I think you see, uh, when you find a collaborator that you really connect with, like that's why, you know, Spielberg always works with, you know, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall or, you know, why they, Thelma Schumacher always edits Scorsese's films. Once you find that chemistry, you stick with it because, you know, you're getting into a circumstance where there's a lot of money and a, and a short amount of time moving around and, you know, everyone comes together for three months and then disappears. And so, you really want to know what people are like under pressure because everyone is, you know, nice and positive when times are good, but when things go down, that's where you really see people's true character. And there's kind of, you know, two types of people. There's people that are like, we're in this together. Let's figure this out. Or there's it's us versus you, you know, it's us versus them. And, and so it's, it's uh, again, not to oversimplify anything, but I, I agree. Like there's a magic and, and with something like watch this, I was very fortunate that everyone was, inspired to make the same movie with one of the films I had before that, that wasn't the case. And it was, it was pretty brutal. It was pretty intense. Well, we'll get to watch list in a second. Cause I, I mentioned this before we started, but I did have the pleasure of watching it. So I'm excited to, to break that movie okay. down with you. Once you decide, okay, film is what I want to do. And you go to film school. How do you, how do you start your film career? What, what was your next step after film school? Uh, well, I guess like it's important to, you know, emphasize the part before film school or during film school, where it's just make as much as you can. And we kind of said that before, but I probably did like 50 or 100 shorts and 20 music videos and just like for no money, just to make stuff. And like it's, you know, unless you're kind of in that 0.01% of just auteurs or just, you know, born with that talent, like a lot of it is just like, you know, like building those skills um, so shoot as much as you can, um, shorts, just with your friends, even if no one sees them and stuff. Um, and then yeah, I guess going from there, like, yeah, really try and get on to bigger productions, um, like see, uh, like intern, you know, get onto a movie set and see sort of like a bigger film and how that happens. Cause it's a very different thing than, you know, shooting with friends get into like a production company, read as many scripts as you can. Um, I think that's where the networking, like you said, kind of comes into it. Uh, again, unless you're like this like visionary who's made this thing that like is totally unique and incredible. Um, a lot of it is just like teaming up with people and, and continuing to do it. Um, I had the good fortune of working as a camera intern with the Coen brothers on Oprah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was sort of my first foray into a big Hollywood movie was I was down in Mississippi for a couple months uh, as under Roger Deakins, you know, getting him tea every day and, and moving the monitor around for, for Joel and Ethan to, to look at. And, you know, it was incredible because 
get to see it, you know, like George Clooney and like how he operates and then the producers who are like figuring out and then the AD who's or organizing the set. And it's just such a, that I think two months really taught me as much if not more than, than my four years of film school. Um, so I would say another way to get into the process is to try and get onto a, a set of any kind, a television, commercial, like documentary uh, feature that education is, is you can't buy and, and you all, you know, hopefully get paid for. Um, yeah, I guess. So that was my next step was I, I went to work on, on that film. Um, and then through that, I kind of kept in touch with George Clooney's team and, and, you know, like strangely, uh, it was through his hairdresser, his stylist, uh, that actually hired me to work on the next film that they did together that Clooney directed called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. And, my job in that case was to do the behind the scenes for the film, um, kind of like, you know, recording just the EPK and what was happening. Um, and, and then I went to work in some production companies, like interns, you know, answered phones, read scripts, did coverage. Um, I figured, you know, coming to LA is probably part of the stop on the journey that any aspiring filmmaker has, you know. Uh, it's different now, there's a lot of like other hubs, like obviously, Atlanta there's a ton of shooting going on um and and New Orleans um but yeah just just get in just get a foot in somewhere um because it is like a, a river that you get swept up in and and hopefully can kind of like keep your head above water because it's <laughs> it's really competitive I'm sure this the knowledge you learned from being on the set of Oh Brother Where Art There had to have been invaluable because you think of the the who's who that worked on that movie some of the greatest at their their profession ever that's totally. i mean roger deacons alone that's yeah amazing that film was actually the first uh time roger or anyone did a digital intermediate too so the first time that a uh, film went through a computer to to do the color grade and so i remember him sort of like you know all of the art department would be you know dressing a scene with all these plants and stuff and he would like kind of whisper to the camera department they don't know. I'm just going to turn that all brown in post. And so it, I, you know, had no idea what he was talking about. So you see the film and it's just this beautiful sepia tone that no one had ever seen before. And so you're right. It was, I mean, people at the top of the game and Roger's hilarious. And, and uh, I actually ran into him on the, on, on, on the beach here in Santa Monica. Um, you know, he was, he, I guess he lives around here and I saw him like a month ago or right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I guess a couple months ago now and, and chatted with him and was like, Hey, I used to work for you. And he, and he, you know, whether he remembered or not, he made time for me and was like, what are you up to now and stuff. So those relationships like last, you know, um, over time. And, and so, and he went and watched my film watch list and gave me some really good feedback to it. You know, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. absolutely and fantastic. Joel, and Joel and Ethan, I mean, they're like, uh, they're so, organized like they they basically have sat down and written at any given time they have eight scripts that they've finished that they're just you know sitting on and they no matter what every week they sit down and, and write together and so they have this process of uh, you know now they're working separately on stuff but um the detail of the character like they don't have to do rehearsals or you know, anything because it's so every little twang of the accent is like written on the page. And then they do thousands of storyboards so that every shot's detailed. And so when they get to set, like they're able to just kind of, you know, everyone knows what they're doing and it's very relaxed and they just laugh when they're watching the performance. And, you know, Joel deals more with the camera and Ethan deals more with the performance. And so it's a joy, like you said, to work on a, on one of their sets and people often take a step down in rank or, you know, otherwise to work with them because, you know, if you're working on the Coen Brothers film, it's going to be a classic. And, and you can't say that for, for all filmmakers, you know. Well, and even if you're doing something very minor on a set like that, just to watch those who are so great at their craft do what they do is, like I said, an invaluable learning experience. So that's that's cool. amazing. Yeah, it was, I, I was so lucky, uh, really early in my career, I, I guess I was like 21 years old, um, maybe even too young to fully appreciate like that moment until it was, until it had, was over. But yeah, I, I, uh, you know, it's really in this day and age, I think like, um, that unique perspective and voice that, you know, they have and a few other, 
uh, notable filmmakers have is is kind of what you know we all admire and strive is that they're it's not just the story that they're telling you it's it's how they're telling it to you that makes it so unique and that was the thing that really struck me was like they they build these worlds that are very like within 10 seconds of watching a film you know you're in a coen brothers film and and that's like that kind of authorship is like the uh thing that excites me the most now is like striving towards that and you know anyone we can kind of copy and learn from and reproduce like all that we want but until we really find our own voice like that's when i think things don't quite start happening the way we want them to and and so i don't know like you know there are a ton of filmmakers who do like you know great action movies and and, and stuff that isn't necessarily that original, but entertains people. Um, but to me, I'm more interested in kind of contributing to the conversation of cinema. Well, and one of my favorite aspects about movies, and I think the Coen brothers do this very well, is whenever I go to a movie theater or, you know, lately now even watching them at home, I love being able to just immerse myself in the world and forget mm -hmm. about everything else that's going on, you know, whether it's, you know, if you're having personal or professional problems, you can watch a movie and you get immersed in the world that they create and you forget about all your problems for a couple of hours. That's yeah. movies to me are almost like an escape in a way. And, and I think the Coen brothers do that very well. Yeah, totally. It's, uh, you know, it's an escape and it's also a moment of uh, like self-reflection, I guess, because I think you can you know, we can, we can be taken somewhere else and on a, on this like incredible journey, but there's also something that we like self-identify with, with what the characters are going through. And, and I think that's why it's such a communal experience. I mean, you know, what's so sad to me now about the way that we're consuming content is that it's in isolation a lot of the time, but and we still get that like escapism feel, but that the power of being in that dark room with like a hundred strangers and all going through the same experience at the same time is, it's really cathartic and it's really powerful. Um, and so, yeah, I agree with you. There's some, there's, there's nothing like the magic of movies. Well, human emotions are infectious. You know, you hear someone laugh. Like to me, if I go to see a comedy in a theater and I hear one person laugh, I'm going to start laughing. If yeah. it's a drama and you know, the person you're know, sitting a few chairs down from me is emotionally moved by this really powerful scene that's going to make me get into it. So that that is the one thing that we're missing right now is the the feeding off of each other's emotions when you go to a, a packed theater. Yeah, totally. I I I agree. I, just, I hope it comes back sooner than later. Um, but that's honestly, you know, we were talking about the doom and gloom earlier about the theatrical side of it. That's why I'm optimistic that theaters will never go away fully because of that, you know, shared experience that you're talking about. And look. It's still when you're a teenager and you're, you don't have a license yet, it's still what your parents can drop you and your friends off to go do for a night. It's still the best place to take a date, you know? Um, and so I think there is like a, a community aspect to cinema that, you know, we're really starting to appreciate more now that it's been taken from us. Absolutely. So let's talk about your film watch list. Uh, as I mentioned, I had the pleasure of watching it, finished watching it earlier today. What was the inspiration behind this movie and kind of walk me through the process of, of getting it made? It was so crazy because this was not like a, a world that I knew much about. You know, the, the film is set in the Philippines and it takes place against the uh, drug wars and the extrajudicial killings that are happening there. Um, and, you know, for, for, for people that might be listening that don't know a lot about what's happening there, basically... Um, the president Duterte uh, a few years ago when he was elected came to power on a platform of if you vote me in, I will uh, crack down on drugs and uh, went so far as to say I will kill 100,000 drug dealers if I'm president and people, you know, he won and he, and he, and he got uh, the presidency and he basically came out and said right away, if you're a policeman or a military man and and you run into anyone who is suspected of selling drugs, you have my permission and you can't arrest them safely. You have my permission to kill them. And if you're a member of the public and you are suspecting any of your neighbors of doing drugs, you have my permission to kill them, too. And so it created this mass confusion and system of vigilantes where, you know, 
dead bodies started turning up in the street with a cardboard sign on them that said, I'm a drug pusher, don't be like me. And, you know, it's gone on to kill like tens of thousands of people. And it's unclear whether it's the, you know, the police that are behind it or it's other citizens. And so I started reading about this in the papers and I, and I was just really struck, you know, um, because the idea that if you've, you know, like dabbled in drug use, like, are, is your life worthless? Should you be condemned to death when, you know, there's so many other like complicated issues around this was something that like we struggle with here in our country and, you know, with me personally. And so I, I guess like I saw this and I was like, this feels uh, very like crossing a line of, you know, authoritarianism and, and you know, uh, people being above the law. Um, but it was just the human story. Like I saw this photograph of a, of a woman cradling her dead husband um, that looked like Mother Mary. And it, I called the reporter. I could not stop thinking about this photograph. So I called the reporter that, that had fixed the story. And she told me most heartbreaking things I'd ever heard. And at the end of the conversation, she said, why don't you come to Manila and see for yourself what's happening? And so I just on a whim, like was able to, to take her up on the offer and went out there and embedded with these journalists for three weeks. Um, and it was really a case of just not thinking too much about it, just following your gut. And, you know, I had overthought the process, the creative process before, I think this is a big part about having those creative breakthroughs is like listening to your intuition and your heart and not trying to like overthink about what would be cool or what you should be doing, but just like follow what is your heart's telling you to do. It sounds cheesy, I know, but it's it's been transformative for, for my creative process. And I found myself, you know, like talking to real victims of the drug war and, and ex-police officers and, and drug rehab clinics on the ground out there. And I was just like, no one really understands what's happening here. You can read about it in the newspapers and, and you know, nonfiction tells you what happened, but fiction tells you what it feels like. I want to do a film that, that shows what it's like to be on the ground out here and go through this uh, tragedy. And so I tried to talk myself out of it. I was like, I've, you know, never, I don't, I'm not Filipino. I don't speak the language. Who am I to think I should be the one to tell this story? But something was like, that's your head, you know, getting in the way, like your heart says, go do it. And every time I took a step forward, something else fell into place. And, you know, this film came together and from beginning of the idea to filming was only nine months. And I've never had something happen that quickly. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it was just like the universe kind of aligned in a way. Well, sometimes it's all about the timing and the events that just happen to fall into place. It's almost like it's meant to happen, like fate pushes it to happen. And that, that's what it sounds like that happened with you. Uh, once yes. you started filming, how long did it take you guys to shoot the film? <laughs> so they have this crazy way of filming in the Philippines, which is all of the cast and the crew and the equipment is on a 24-hour hire, like a flat fee. So you shoot for 24 continuous hours every day. And, and then you take a day off and it's day on, day off. So even though we only shot for 16 days, like really that's 32 days because every day was a double day, what we do here. Um, so we shot, we shot uh, from the beginning of November right up until Christmas uh, of 2017, I guess it was. And uh, that was, yeah, like two months. But oh, wow. Yeah, I guess 32 days. So wait, no, 16 days, but every day off. So 32 days total. So yeah, I guess about five weeks. That's insane. I, I can't imagine filming for 24 continuous hours. I mean, yeah, you get the day <laughs> off, but still it's like, man, I, I would coffee and soda would be my best friend. I drink so much coffee, but it's, it's, it's really, <laughs> they're, they're trying to change it now. It's, you know, a few directors have died doing this and, and actors oh, I bet. Have died. yeah, like, you know, somewhere in the hour 18 and 20 and 22, like you're just a zonked and it's not, you know, it's not just sleep deprivation. Like you're on your feet in like 120 degree weather, like during a storm and you're constantly have to be alert and making decisions, you know, for the whole crew. And so it was, it was, I would never wish it on my worst enemy. Let's just say that. I can imagine the caffeine intake on that crew <laughs> was dangerous. They would just come and put it in your hand like every two hours. Like you didn't even ask for it. You just look down and have another Dixie cup full of it. 
That's that's kind of cool, actually. <laughs> I, I I dig that. I mean, I, my next step was just getting an IV of coffee. But we didn't get to that part. <laughs> just walk walk around with a bag and just put it directly in your veins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was brutal, though. I mean, we you know, oh man, we were caught in the middle of some monsoons and the, and got flooded out of these sets. Like a, a train came in and hit our set and destroyed it. Um, I was, I was briefly hospitalized for exhaustion at one point. Uh, it was not an easy film to make. It was, and, and, and the least of which that we're shooting this, you know, kind of controversial film under the, you know, nose of an authoritarian regime. Like it was, People were definitely on edge. Like we, you know, we were. I was. It was me and the cinematographer were the only two non-Filipinos of the crew. Like we both had come from the states. Everyone else was local, and so it was amazing to kind of, you know, look around for a moment and be like, "Wow, I can't believe we actually are pulling this off. This is wild." Well, it's like I said. It's sometimes fate just. It's almost like it deems it to happen. You know, things yeah. happen for a reason. It's like if something's going to work out, it's going to work out one way or the other. Totally. That's, I'm a that's what it sounds like happened with you. Yeah, it's it's it, it definitely was timing. I think the fact that like, you know, we uh, this was, I guess, after 2016 here. So, you know, obviously, whether, you know, I, I don't want to get into politics about whether people like the president or don't like him, but he's definitely brought out like a very, you know, energized force on both sides. And that's sort of what happened out there was, you know, this this president uh, in the Philippines had very strong tactics for being tough on crime that, you know, on the one hand, you could argue, yeah, he's made things safer and, and, you know, he's been really strict about it. But on the other hand, you're like, he's above the law and he's killing, you know, civilians and stuff. And so there was some parallel to, to what was happening here and the debates that we're, that we're having here. And so I think for me, that was part of the timing was that like, you know, there was, uh, there was people that supported this film, like one of the big studios that funded this film is Braun Studios, who who did uh, the Joker, you know, and 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 Leave No Trace and a, and a few other ones, and it was really because of the woman there, Brenda Gilbert. Um, she was like, you know, I, I I want my children to know about what's happening in this part of the world. This I didn't know this was going on, and and you know the the sales company XYZ Films who you know they did that film Mandy with Nicolas Cage and they did the Raid Redemption the action film um they were like you know we have been following this in the news and we think this is important so we'll support you in this and so that timing thing I, i'm a firm believer in like if if you know you're doing it for the right intentions and the universe is aligned it these things start to happen that you could never expect and for sure that's how this film came into the world when some people call it luck i like to prefer, refer to it as timing just in the sense that it really is the timing that's so important with some things you can align as much as you want but if the timing's not right it's it's just not going to happen and i i'm going to try and avoid spoilers for those who haven't seen the movie cuz i do think everyone should watch it my initial inclination about a third of the way into the movie and i know you made this you said back in what 2017 mhm yeah my initial thought was it was such a reflection of some of the things that have been going on in the U.S. with the police brutality and, you know, stories that were dominating the media throughout the summer. It, it immediately made me think of that. And it was, I don't know if I want to call it foreshadowing. And I know it was going on over there, but it was almost like foreshadowing of what's going on here. So that that was my initial thought. But I, what I what I love yeah. the most about the movie is that it looks it's shot and feels very raw emotionally. Like to me, the look of the film that it's almost like that gorilla style at times, I think fits the situation and the setting and the mood of the entire film. Like if it looked, you know, if you had these dramatic, you know, push in or pull out shots, it looked, you know, like a drama. I don't think it would have worked the way that it did. I love the raw feel of it was what I enjoyed the most about it. No, I, I, that's incredible that you picked up on the visual style. I, you know, I just to mention about the police brutality thing, because, you know, you're, you're one of the first people that's picked up on those parallels. Like I, there is a timing aspect to this and, the, and there's also a, a cyclical nature to things that, you know, they, 
uh, tend to come back in, in the news and in the consciousness of society and stuff. And, you know, the, when we did some of the first screenings, um, you know, because the film really is about, uh, it's, you don't really know who's behind these killings, whether it's the cops or whether it's like someone else, but it's definitely, um, the, it, it mirrors a lot of what's happening here in that police brutality is a global issue and oppression of, you know, certain populations that, that receive more force than others and, and stuff like that is something that, that we grapple with as well. And so, you know, there were, there were people that saw the film that connected with it in, in ways that I hadn't anticipated. And, you know, now that we're in this period where it's in the public conversation so actively about police brutality, this film does have uh, a certain resonance in this time. And I guess like, you know, the ur there's a concept that I believe in of urgent cinema that like, you know, to make films that kind of are on the tip of people's tongues and in the back of our minds that raise issues that we're all kind of thinking about, but we don't know how to put in the words yet that cinema can help us articulate. And so for me, like, you know, it might've been a couple years ahead of like where we are now, but it was sort of on the trajectory to be ready to be seen at this moment. And so, yeah, you can't kind of plan that timing, but there is a certain universal force driving all of these like, you know, conversations and stuff. Um, and then, yeah, the visual style, I mean, it's, you know, one of the best parts about this was working with Daniela. No, it's the, the cinematographer. She's just incredible. Like she was able to capture this realism and, you know, we talked a lot about the beginning that authenticity was the most important part. Like, because this was about, it was based on a true story and it's about a real tragedy where 25,000 people have been murdered now. If we didn't get this right, it was going to be downright disrespectful to the people that had suffered through this. And so, and especially as outsiders coming in there, we were going to be under the microscope of like, you know, did we do our homework and did this feel authentic? And so at every stage, whether it was the performance or the cinematography, we really strive for realism and authenticity. And so she would, you know, she was like, let's not use big movie lights. Let's, let's use these lenses that allow us to shoot under street lights. You know, we can, these Sumilex lenses that we can go wide open to like one, two or one, four and actually capture the street lights that you wouldn't be able to get on like, you know, normal airy lenses or a red camera or something. And then she would augment what's there. She'd take a look at the street and be like, those fluorescents, those neons, like get me a couple more of those and, and some of these and just boost it rather than try and fake it. And, you know, we shot in the real locations where these murders were happening. We shot in the slums. You know, there was a conversation early on with the producers to go shoot on a set. And I was, I, I was like, no, if we do that, it's not going to feel authentic. And, you know, they have this, this saying that performance, uh, sorry, that story how do we say this uh the camera doesn't lie have you heard that or it's like it's usually in regards to performance where you know that's what makes a great actor great is that the camera picks up any kind of insincerity or fake moment i also believe that story doesn't lie like you if you fake something in a story it bumps for an audience and they're taken out of it and they're like i don't that didn't feel real even if they don't know that world and so we did so much like kind of research and homework to get those authentic details so that felt like you were there with these people, like a fly on the wall. Absolutely. And to go off on a point you said earlier, it's talking about the, you know, what may not be a comfortable subject, like you said, this being based off real events and you wanting to capture that authenticity. And it, even though it may not be comfortable, it's what needs to happen with respect to the story. Because like you said, if you try and fake it, everyone's going to know. And one, it's not going to be a good movie. And second of all, you're going to be disrespecting the source material. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's um, I think realism is in some ways one of the hardest to pull off because, you know, how do you film it in such a way that like it, it feels like you're right there? How does the actor play it in such a way that it doesn't feel rehearsed? Like how does it that wall have the peeling paint that only that wall could have? And so it's actually to try and design all that stuff is, is very difficult. Um, and so you, the, the goal is to not do that, to like, you know, trust everyone that what you're going for or the template that you're setting forth, that everyone can kind of bring their swagger to it and, and kind of like relax into it. And so um, we use a lot of real people from the neighborhoods. A lot of the side characters, almost all of them are, we did casting from the, the slums and the streets. And so, 
if you see that guy whose face looks like he's tweaking on meth, that's because he's probably a recovered meth addict, you know, and like, you can't fake that. And, and so like the, every little detail and, you know, we would get to the set and it'd be like, uh, okay, I want to cast these people here. And my team would be like, no, we can't, we have these actors. And I'd be like, they look like actors. Like I really, it's important, you know? And so the guiding light of, authenticity um, is what kind of pulled us through this process. And, you know, once you have something like that, that you've decided is a parameter, it makes the decision-making a lot easier because you're like, no, that's not in support of this vision. You know? Well, and, and to compliment the, the actors specifically the, the main cast, I thought everyone fit their role extremely well from, you know, the actress who played the Maria character. I thought she did a phenomenal job. I thought, the guy who played, I believe his name was Alvin. The second yeah. he walked on screen, I'm like, that is a dude I would not mess with. <laughs> and he's like the biggest teddy bear in real life is the funny thing. But yeah, that's why he's an actor, you know? Well, like when he walks in and you just see like that cold look in his eyes, you're like, yeah, that's that's a guy I would not want to cross. So I, I think yeah, from a yeah. from an emotional standpoint, I thought all the actors did a, a phenomenal job. Because it felt very real, and it felt real through their performance. The combination of that, as well as, as I mentioned earlier, the movement of the camera and that almost type of guerrilla style, it almost felt like a documentary in some pieces. Like, it felt that real. No, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a huge compliment, Eric. I appreciate that, because I, I, that's what we were, you know, hoping for. Um, yeah, the actress, I mean, Alessandra is just, she's a force of nature. I mean, she, you know, she's a pretty big star out there, but really known for like good quality work, not like, you know, always the biggest commercial cinema. But she, uh, I always knew that this role, this movie rested on whoever that actress's shoulders were, because, you know, as you've seen, and not to give any spoilers, like there's some pretty big twists and turns in there about what she like, ends up doing what happens to her and what she what she has to do to, to others and so it's very uh i knew if you couldn't not necessarily not necessarily sympathize but at least understand why she was doing some of the things she did then the whole movie would fall apart and so you know at its most basic this is about a mother going to great lengths to protect her children and you know what would you do if someone, you know, was threatening your children, like how far would you go uh, to keep them safe? And that's like a really primal instinct. And I think that's, you know, to me, some of the strongest stories are the most primal ones. Like, you know, you think about that movie Lion with Dev Patel, like what made it so great is that it's just a boy looking for his mom. And that's something that we can all relate to. And so she was just fierce though. Like she could play very lost and vulnerable and quiet or just like this like sassy tongue on her too that she would talk back to people. Um, and then you mentioned Alvin, you know, like also, and it was also to try and humanize the, their positions and how they saw the world. Like, you know, it's and a lot of the debates that we're talking about here where, uh, in his mind, he's like, look, these people are scoundrels. They're, they're worthless. They're threats to society. We need to root them out like a cancer. And then she'd be like, but that's someone's son. That's someone's husband that's someone's father like how can you just step on them like a cockroach and so that kind of intensity where you know you actually understand both points of view and you're like oh my god they're both right but this is like how do you move forward from here um it's a tough thing for an actor to play you know and and so even the main cop like ventura that guy jake macapagle um he's phenomenal like he was in this movie metro manila that won sundance a few years ago that kind of went viral in the u.s also if, you, if anyone hasn't seen it metro manila is an incredible film and that's how i found him was was uh through that and you know he plays someone you know who on the surface is is really like trying to uphold the law and, and help people and you know defend the country against this like drug epidemic and then when you start to peel back the layers of what's actually driving them to do this, it's like, it can be, it can be, you know, kind of surprising. Um, and so to, for him to play both this quiet kind of like, you know, positive figure and then, you know, where he goes and turns into that takes real talent to, to hold all of those things in the same role, you know? Absolutely. No, if anyone has not seen uh watch list, definitely check it out if you have the means to, cause it's, 
it's one of the better movies I've seen in quite a while. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you right now, but I, I truly enjoyed it because it had that raw emotional feel that I feel like can only be pulled off if done the right way. Like it's emotion that you can't fake. If totally. that make if that makes sense, so and I thought everyone pulled it off, and props to you for the the immense challenge that you went through to to get this film made. But and I did want to ask through learning all these stories because as you said, it's based off of real situations. Did the process of making this film have an emotional impact on you in that regard? Totally, yeah. It was it was pretty like disturbing. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, like doing these ride alongs with reporters, um, kind of how it work is, and this was just in the research phase, just to get the script right. And honestly, I wish I'd had a camera because, you know, the, there's a whole documentary about like, you know, how this world works. But we would basically stay at this press office near the police station. And as soon as the cops would get a call that someone had been murdered, we would get into the reporter's car and drive as fast as we can to the crime scene. And I'd seen more dead bodies in that, in that couple of weeks than I'd seen in my whole life previously. And, and terrifying because, you know, they had just been murdered like half an hour before. And so like, you know, and they would be picking them up off the street. And, and it, was, it was just like these images that would haunt you. And, you know, when I go to bed, I would see, see you know, these, these horrific images. And one of the things that like really compelled me to want to make this was that, um, one night we were in the slums and we were waiting at a, at a small house for the body of this father to be brought back in a casket because he had been murdered the night before. And we were with the family, uh, the mother and six kids that were now, um, you know, bastards without, you know, left without their father. And uh, we pulled the teenage boy aside and just asked him what happened. And he, you know, had been kind of upstairs in this like, you know, small dwelling and looked through a hole in the floor and saw the whole thing happen. These two vigilantes in plain clothes rush in and, you know, uh, kill his father in front of uh, his brother and sister. And one of them was a woman. And that uh, really struck me that like, you know, the challenge that, uh, you know, a woman would have play being a vigilante, you know, she has certain advantages that she can get closer to her targets without raising suspicion. She can lure them out into places that maybe like a male counterpart wouldn't be able to do. And so there's a specific like need and use for them. But the fact that like this boy was going to grow up the rest of his life without a dad over something like some petty drug charges um, that, you know, OK, if, if it's against the law, like arrest him, take him in, serve his time, clean him up back in society. You don't murder him in front of his family like for for petty charges. And so it was it was taken away this entire generation of, of, of young children's fathers. And now it's happened 25,000 times. I mean, you think about that's half a million people or a couple million people that it's been affected on the family side of things. I was like, I, I, I have to make this movie because I don't think people fully understand the realities that are here. And, and I think being like sort of a Western filmmaker with sensibilities of like three act structure and, and, and performance and going to you know, uh, what was happening there. Like my hope is that like in your experience watching it, that, that that's something where it feels somewhat familiar in the world, the way the story is being told, but the circumstances and, you know, the twists and turns are totally blindside people and stuff. And so it's a wild ride. Like I, I would say it's not one, you know, that's for the faint of heart. Like it's a pretty intense film from beginning to end, but for real movie, like fans of, uh, of you know, cinema, my hope is that this can still surprise uh, anyone who thinks that they've got it figured out where it's going. And I won't spoil it, but for those when you do watch it, you won't be ready for the last five minutes of the movie. Because I certainly wasn't. Oh, wow. It, it, was, it was pretty powerful stuff. I mean, the whole, the whole film was, was powerful, but there, there are some, some good storytelling twists that happen that I, I didn't expect, so... I very much enjoyed the movie, like I said, from, from top to bottom. Thanks, I thought sir. it was well yeah. acted. I thought it was well made. So props to you and to, to everyone who so much. exceeded the, you know, the, the challenges that I'm sure you guys had to go through, as you, as you explained earlier. 
Yeah, well, it's like they say, like, uh, nothing's good if it, if it wasn't worth fighting for. And uh, this one was definitely not easy. And, you know, we did this film on a shoestring. Um, and, you know, that obviously money can go a little bit further in, in that part of the world, but it doesn't uh, discount, like, how difficult it was. And I guess, you know, part of what is exciting about movies is that they can put you in someone else's shoes across the world. Like, you may not have ever been to the Philippines. You may not know what's going on, you know, politically there. But for 90 minutes, you can feel what it's like to walk in those shoes and be like at the at the bottom up in, a, in this like repressive regime and what it's like to know that at any moment your life can be upended and 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 and, and ended. And so it's a it's a very powerful tool. It's a window into the human condition. And, you know, my hope with with films like this is that it can kind of you know, build empathy and show us like our common humanity that like, no matter our struggles, like, you know, there, there are people in a lot worse situations than us. And, you know, to be grateful for, for all the good things that we do have in our lives, you know? Absolutely. Well, as we start to wrap up here, uh, do you have any other projects that you have in the works? I know you mentioned, you know, the pandemic, how it's impacted everyone, but do you have any films immediate in the works that you're you're working on? Yeah, totally. I I um I've just uh, finished my first documentary um, that is called The Reunited States, and it's about people trying to bridge our political divide. And so we've been shooting over the past two years uh, with a handful of stories of people. Um, you know, it's such a polarizing time, and you know we're kind of divided in these two camps and shouting at each other and both sides think the other side is destroying the country. But, you know, the film is really about um, that each of us has a role to play in polarization and we're either part of the problem or part of the solution. And so the reunited States, we've just started going out on the festival circuit and, you know, it should be available for distribution, hopefully, you know, towards the end of the year. Um, but that's one that I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of just cause it, you know, we couldn't have anticipated how timely, it would be. Um, and then I have another project that is sort of, uh, this is my next fictional project, but it's at the intersection of uh, mass shootings and online extremism and kind of goes into uh, the rabbit holes of, you know, YouTube extremism and, and 4chan and 8chan and how that leads to violence in the real world. And it's kind of a crime thriller, um, but another, another really intense one. Um, I guess those are the types of stories I'm, I'm realizing I'm drawn to. No, definitely sounds like it. No, those, those both sound really interesting. I, I'd love to see both of them uh, when they're completed. Cool. So yeah, my, I'll, yeah, I'll hopefully be able to share more info um, as we move forward. But yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to get that out there. Absolutely. And last thing I want to ask you before we got here, and you've kind of alluded to you know, several pieces of this, but what is one piece of advice that you would have to an aspiring filmmaker? Hmm. I guess, uh, you know, there's, there's the, what we talked about earlier about just getting out there and doing it, but I would say, um, even more like important than that is to find out why you're doing it. Like what's driving you to do this because it's not an easy path. Like, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, like it's incredibly difficult and competitive and requires a lot of money and luck and connections and everyone will slam the door on your face. And so to understand the real reasons of what is compelling you to do this, you know, if it's fame or if it's money, like stop right now. If you can think of anything else you would rather do with your life, go do that. This is too hard. And so for me, I guess it's really been like, and this has only happened more recently, um, to understand like what your uh, contribution is to the craft. Like, don't look at this as what you can get out of it, but what are you adding to the conversation? And, you know, if you love action movies, like what makes yours different? If you love horror movies, what makes yours special? And so, and, and you know, what is it you want people to walk away with feeling? And, and so to me, those questions, once I started to have answers to those is when things started to happen in my career. And so I would say it's never too early to start thinking about that. That's great advice. That is great advice. Well, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. This was great. And if you want to come back on to plug your documentary or your other upcoming film, you're more than welcome to. 
Oh, cool. Thanks, Derek. I appreciate that. I might take you up on it. It's been a lot of fun. You ask great questions. I, I like that we got to zoom out and talk about the journey. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, that's the cool thing about doing these conversations is you never know. Like you can plan to talk about certain things, but you, I wasn't expecting to talk about the reopening of movie theaters at the beginning. <laughs> so it's that these are always great to have. So you know, this, this was a lot of fun. So so thank you. Yeah. Likewise, you ask great questions, Derek. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Absolutely. And if you want to follow the show on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at D Diamond Podcast. I'm now on Patreon at D Diamond Podcast, patreon.com slash D Diamond Podcast. If you want to subscribe to the show, I'm on really all uh, forms of podcasting Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher. Also, thank you to the Unicorn Wranglers for providing the theme music for the podcast. You can check out their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you once again to Ben Recky, and we'll see you guys next week for another episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. Mm-hmm.